It's Sunday, the 29th of September. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. Today, Britain's Prime Minister prepares for what should be a week of adulation at his party conference. But Boris Johnson's battles are far from over, and they're only getting worse. We'll look ahead to the chaos likely to come in the next few days and try to figure out how we got here. Plus, the fading influence at the UN's gathering of world leaders and a look through the morning's newspapers. All to come in the next half hour, Monocle's House View, here on Monocle 24. Hello, welcome to Monocle's House View for this uh, Sunday. The Prime Minister wakes up this morning in the city of Manchester, venue for this year's Conservative Party conference. It is Boris Johnson's first as Tory leader, and the centrepiece should be his first leader's speech. But the conference is, to be honest, something of a sideshow to the continuing political chaos at Westminster. MPs returned to the Commons this week earlier than they were meant to after the Supreme Court ruled that Johnson's move to suspend Parliament was unlawful. MPs then refused to sanction the normal brief suspension to allow the conference to take place, meaning that government ministers are going to spend an awful lot of time in the next few days testing the quality of the rail links between Manchester and London as they shuttle backwards and forwards between the two cities. Well, here in London, uh, with me in the studio this morning is the journalist Joy Ladike, who, like me, has to battle through this nonsense every day. Um, Joy, it said Boris Johnson's first Tory conference. This was supposed to be this joyous parade as he celebrated that he was the man to deliver Brexit, and he arrives having lost every single House of Commons vote that he's so far faced, having been found by the Supreme Court to have broken the law, having, according to one paper been forced to phone the Queen to say sorry. And then uh, another paper reporting um, new developments in corruption allegations linked to his time as, as Mayor of London. As one MP said a while ago, it's not going well, is it? Well, it's not going well, but the thing about Boris Johnson is he loves an audience that loves him. And the Conservative Party faithful, these 160,000 members, uh, around 90,000 of them voted him in as leader. And while he's getting a tough reception in the British press. He's getting a tough reception in Parliament. When he finally goes there, he gets people shouting and screaming in adulation when he gets up on stage. Now, he's always been essentially the kind of the warm-up act to the leader at conference, and he's always played to pack houses. There was a famous conference where in uh, 2015 where he was waving a brick and everybody photographed him. And in many ways, he's often upstaged the leader at Conservative Party conference. Here, he will have a warm audience who, who, who wants to applaud him. And so we'll continue with this sort of strange um, bifurcation of reality where in his world, everything is going absolutely fine. Or in the Conservative Party world, everything is going absolutely fine. And in the outside world, everybody else is going, this is a bit of a mess. I just would point out, though, that of the Conservative Party, of the members of Parliament, about half of them are kind of very vocal in backing Boris Johnson. But if you watch the other half, they are becoming kind of quieter on the benches, finding it a little bit more difficult to come out strongly in support of him. Um, and then you've got the issue of the, the, the 21... <coughs> Uh, Conservative MPs who were kicked out of the party by Johnson. Um, now, they are still sitting on the government benches in the House of Commons. They haven't budged from their seats. Um, yes, they've been kicked out of the Parliamentary Party, but they're still paying their Conservative Party membership fees. I mean, apart from the ones who have actually defected to other parties, they are within their rights, aren't they, to pitch up in Manchester and, and ask where the volivants are. 
They are indeed, and some of them may do and some of them may not. I imagine they actually don't want to do the conflict at the moment. I think they are... There, there, there is this coming week. There's going to be a lot of rather interesting um, discussions going on in London amongst what people loosely call the Rebel Alliance. Those who want to actually curtail Johnson's power, make sure he stays on the tram tracks, acts in a sensible way for the country rather than for his party. And I would imagine a number of those big players would think London was a more important arena in this coming week than Manchester. Now, also in London, we have conversations about. Uh, votes of no confidence in Boris Johnson. We have um, further scrutiny of this bill to find this uh, bill to extend where there's a, there's an anxiety that he's going to try and break that. And there's also, I think my favourite, is uh, talk of impeachment, um, which is the the Welsh party... Can you, can you impeach a Prime Minister? You can indeed impeach a Prime Minister. We find that the, the US borrowed the impeachment uh, terms from us, so we could have a double impeachment going on. It hasn't been used since the 1840s in the UK, although they did some, one backbencher did try to impeach Tony Blair over Iraq. So it's all still on the statute books. You say that the no confidence vote, if I understand this, this is this is the sort of the nuclear option. If they think Boris Johnson is going to ignore the law that requires him to seek an extension without a deal in mid-October. Well, we always talk about the nuclear option as being the worst case scenario, but actually it's, I think it's not. This is completely it's one of the, the um, major decisions that has to happen in, uh, this week and the following weeks, is at what point do all the parties in opposition to him and the members of the Conservative Party he's thrown out come to the decision that in fact this has gone far enough this is a uh, um, um, if I may be rude a madman in charge um, and we need to stop this and that could happen this week it could happen the week after it could happen the week after that so not nuclear at all I mean, well certainly the, the, there's infantry. a Scottish nationalist MP isn't there who's suggesting it's going to have to happen this week if they're to get everything in place to prevent the country leaving the EU without a deal at the end of October? Um, yes and no. It depends on... Um, I mean, rather like Boris Johnson wants to sit up all night with the European Council and have these last-minute negotiations, you know, right down to the wire, and he thinks they'll give in. I think that won't happen, but I think what will happen is the equivalent will happen in um, Westminster, where all the people who are in opposition to him will indeed have a very late-night meeting and finally come up with a solution as to how they ha force an interim government. So the problems with... The, the, there's a whole series of problems with timings, but in fact, if you have a vote of no confidence and produce a new leader who has the confidence of the House within five minutes, that person has to just go and see the Queen and the job is done. But that's, so. the, that's the problem, is, is finding that person around whom they'll all coalesce. The Scottish National Party suggested that could be Jeremy Corbyn, mm. the leader of the opposition, but the Liberal Democrats are less convinced about the idea of getting everyone around Mr Corbyn. And obviously, there is the question of these 20-odd Tories mm. who have often said the breaking point for them is Corbyn, is, is Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. Well, my own favourite um, idea on this, which I just, you know, everybody goes, oh, no, is rather than having any party leaders, what you do is you, t you pick a series of people from within each party. So my preference would be, I would say, Keir Starmer, who's so to kind of lead an interim government with somebody like Luciana Berger from the Liberal Democrats, Rory Stewart would come in, find somebody from within the Tories. And so no part, so all the party leaders stay in place, run their parties, and that interim government of the second tier is also the government of sensibles who just steer this gently to you know, steer Brexit back into kind of safe waters, uh, take the tone of the rhetoric down. Um, and meanwhile, the party leaders get ready for an election next year. 
you know, early next year. That would be a sort of sensible way of going about it. It's just, will, will anybody concede to anything at the moment? Um, it all just strikes me as madness. You, you mentioned the, the, the rhetoric, and certainly when MPs returned on on Wednesday, I mean, the, the the day after the Speaker basically said it was the worst example of behaviour in the Commons he'd ever witnessed. We had MPs in tears. We had red-faced screaming on on both sides. But what we certainly had was a, a, a viciousness that led some to say it is putting the personal safety of MPs at risk. And I think one of the, the, the UK papers today, I think The Observer, is saying that there are people in the Labour Party who think that this is a deliberate strategy. Talk up the risk of riots and disorder because then you can use emergency powers to say, oh, it's a threat to it's a threat to public order and public safety if we don't leave the EU at the end of October because there are going to be riots. Yeah, so I... Um <clears throat> it's it's it is true to say that there have been death threats going to MPs now on a regular basis for the last three years, and it just continues to ramp up. Some go, some do go to Brexiteering MPs. The majority go to remain remainers and uh, disproportionately to women who are speaking up. There have been bricks thrown through windows of just people who've got stop Brexit um, signs up in their windows. The and Boris Johnson has been accused of just ramping up the language over and over again and he keeps referring to this um, Ben Burt Act as the Surrender Act which has a sort of World War II feel to it and a sort of sense that somebody you know betrayal and traitor keeps being used um Again, I think, you know, there's something about the British state which is there's a sort of deep rationality to it. And at certain points in time, the people who actually hold the levers of power, who have spent a lot of time just saying to party leaders, go, get on with it, actually just pull those levers back and say, I'm terribly sorry. There is no reason for a Civil Contingencies Act at this point in time. We didn't use it in the poll tax riots. We didn't use it during the 2011 riots. So why are we using it now? This is just... and. Um, what we haven't, you know, we, we touched very briefly on the Queen's, uh, Boris had to call the Queen um, from New York, and he did indeed apologise. Uh, the Queen, who's famously stayed out of politics, has been dragged into politics yet again, because Sunday Times seems to have leaked, uh, have been leaked the fact that she, um, that Boris Johnson apologised to her. Now, I think... I've assumed that is a leak from the Johnson side to make it look like he's behaving. Mm. Um in which case, the Queen will be even more furious that yet another one of her private conversations with him has become public, or another conversation with the Prime Minister has become public. And again, you, you have to look at this this pretty much unwritten uh, history between the Palace and uh, Downing Street, where there are conversations constantly going back and forth, back and forth, saying, well, how do we steer this? The crucial point is about the Burt, ben, ben Burt Bill is that it has royal assent. The Queen has signed it. And if Boris Johnson tries to mess around with a bill that has been signed by the Queen, I would think at that point in time uh, there will be a sharp intake of breath and these, what you might call the deep state or these kind of other forces will come in and start saying, I'm terribly sorry, this is not how Britain functions. Uh, but that again, and I, I, I've spoken to a couple of friends about the, who live in London, sort of when we were all sitting there in shock and horror about what Boris Johnson is doing. He's, you know, rampaging across constitutional norms and all of these things. But then you sit down and watch the news in the evening and they go to any leave voting 
part of the UK and you'll find a hundred people who will tell you that Boris Johnson is great and he's finally sorting out the MPs and we voted to leave, why haven't we left? And, and if fundamentally this comes down to a general election in which the choice will be between a no-deal Brexit advocated by Boris Johnson mm. and some alternative form, those of us in London might think that the result is obvious in one direction, but it seems that in the rest of the country the, the opinion is very different. Well, I don't, I don't actually think that the, the, the result is obvious at all. Um, and yes, he remains hugely popular in the country. Uh, it does take a while for people to realise that Boris is um, a piece of, um, you know, it, it takes few, it takes <coughs> a few more stories, a little bit of contact, once or twice being screwed over by him, and then you begin to think, hang on a second, hang on a second, which is probably why he wants an early election. Um, he does have these kind of this this continued sort of support for le- I, uh, the support for leave. I, I, I understand. Um, I, I don't support it myself. The support for no deal strikes me as a kind of madness that is, has infected certain parts of the country where you are people actually saying, yes, we want to deprive our neighbours of their rights. Yes, we want to um, put a question mark, you know, risk people's medicine supplies, which is you know, it's a government document. It's not actually hysterical. Yes, we're quite happy to see a load of farmers go out of business. Yes, we're quite happy to see car factories shut down, all for the sake of this one thing. And nobody seems to be making a very strong argument to these people saying, are you sure this is what you voted for? Are you sure you voted to deprive your neighbour of their rights to work, to live, to travel, to get the medicines they want? Um, and there isn't a voice as strong as Johnson's to actually counter that. The other story we have, well, there are so many stories about Boris Johnson, it's got ridiculous, but the, the, the big one that is the uh, corruption allegations. Because um, this is actually where... Boris may get caught quite quickly. Um, he so when he was mayor of London, he uh, seemed to be having a, a very close friendship. Uh, and the Sunday Times today says a full-on affair with this woman, uh, Jennifer Arcuri, uh, w- for whom he was visiting her in her Shoreditch flat and giving her tech. She was giving him technology, technology lessons. lessons, technology lessons. And amazingly, these t- ten thousand, these kept slabs of ten thousand pounds kept coming out of the city hall very budget. Expensive technology yeah, lessons. I could have taught him how to use to, email. To go to anyway, they um, she that. There are now four investigations going on. Um, if there are four investigations going on, it means the evidence behind it is quite hard. Uh, and corruption with public money in the UK, it's, incre- it's quite a rare story. Um, we don't tend to do that level of, I mean, that literally handing out money to your friends level of corruption. Expenses, fiddling expenses, yes, that was huge. This, this is, um, I mean, this, if proved correct, is a, an imprisonable offence. And however much we are beating the drum about Conservative Party conference, Brexit, no deal, deal, hospitals, whatever, eventually this one catches up with him. Quiet week, really, in the UK. <laughs> this, this week's ruling by the Supreme Court that Boris Johnson broke the law in suspending Parliament is obviously humiliating. But what is likely to happen as a result? Uh, let's hear now from Monocle's Andrew Muller. At moments of extreme bewilderment and confusion such as the United Kingdom is presently enduring, it is often a usefully clarifying exercise to set out the facts as they are. This is also a handy recourse for the scripters of radio explainers hoping to buy themselves a small amount of time before they set about attempting in some modest way to reduce the bafflement of their listeners. 
So here is where we presently are, with due recognition that this could all have been overtaken by some other eruption of nonsense between right this very second and the time you finish listening to it. Parliament has not been prorogued. This is the unanimous judgment of all 11 justices. Yesterday, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom passed down an unprecedentedly brutal judgment on the behaviour of a British government. The court ruled unanimously that the Prime Minister, who for reasons surpassing understanding is actually Boris Johnson, acted unlawfully when he advised the Queen to prorogue Parliament in advance of the UK's anticipated departure from the European Union on October 31st. This court has already concluded that the Prime Minister's advice to Her Majesty was unlawful, void and of no effect. In the view of the court, and therefore the law, the, the prorogation, prorogation was also void and of no effect. And Parliament was never actually closed. It is extremely difficult to overstate the severity of this judgement, or the surprise of most observers who expected that the British system would proceed as it usually does, serenely along a well-worn path paved with convention and euphemism. There was widespread anticipation that Johnson might be on the receiving end of a bit of classic British passive-aggressive disapproval, but that would probably be the limit of it. The court's judgement was not that. It is utterly, unequivocally, unspinably damning. In normal times, it would prompt a swift but dignified statement of resignation by the Prime Minister. His position is untenable and he should have the guts for once to do the decent thing and resign. In normal times, however, serious countries are not led by mildly amusing newspaper columnists who've built an infuriatingly consequence-free career on bluff and blather. You do not have to say anything. Is that right? But anything you Hang on, let's get this right. Anyway, you get the gist. Nor do informed democracies usually turn in an hour of crisis to the person who caused the crisis. Boris Johnson's struggle to avoid becoming the UK's shortest-serving Prime Minister – he has 57 days to go – continues. As listeners who've been following Brexit will already know, the United Kingdom is unusual in not having a written constitution. Instead, the UK has always operated according to what the historian Peter Hennessy once called the good chap theory of government. That everyone, whatever their political disagreements, understands the fundamentals of how things ought to be done. Which is usually based significantly on how they have always been done. Just following on the comments from the member for Brighton Pavilion, I'm sure it might be possible to provide the leader of the house with a pillow to make him more comfortable as he seems to be struggling during this debate. These in the last few years, the UK has been having a bash at not doing things like the UK used to do them. Which is how we got to where we are, and why Boris Johnson has not, at least as we go to air, walked. Adding to the general gaiety, Johnson has had to truncate his visit to the United Nations General Assembly in New York to fly back to London last night, as a furious and vindicated Parliament reconvenes. This is almost certainly not the first time that Johnson has needed to pack quickly to return home in a hurry in order to try blustering his way through some or other self-created shambles. 
Given that Boris Johnson no longer commands a majority in the House of Commons, Parliament can theoretically do as it pleases, including bringing about Johnson's defenestration from 10 Downing Street. However, this would nigh certainly force an election, which the opposition Labour Party still seems not to want, or wants only in circumstances which suit it better than the present. Despite everything, Labour's leader, Jeremy Corbyn, is somewhat less popular than Finnish jazz. It is far from unlikely that were an election held, Boris Johnson would win. But the conundrum which must be more immediately resolved is that on October 31st, by force of law, the UK will leave the EU. However, by force of another law, the UK cannot leave the EU on October 31st without a withdrawal agreement in place by October 19th. And this Parliament so far has refused to pass one. As to what happens next, you really might as well write some scenarios down on raffle tickets and pluck one out of a big hat, or engage a chimpanzee with a dartboard. The usual rule with Brexit has been that the single most absurd possible outcome is also the likeliest. But here is a thought. There is a makeable case that what we have witnessed is democracy, the United Kingdom's strange, amorphous, vaguely defined democracy, working exactly as it should. The executive attempted to override Parliament. The judiciary overruled the executive. British law and the sovereignty of the UK's Parliament have been upheld. Which is exactly what Boris Johnson and all other Brexiters, though they may not be in a mood to enjoy the irony, said they wanted all along. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Still ahead on Monocle's House View, we'll take a look through the weekend's papers. Stay with us. Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip, our comprehensive Travel Guide series are packed with tips, essays and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's Travel Guide series is published by Gestalten, the Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You're listening to Monocle's House View for Sunday morning here in London. I'm Paul Osborne. Joe Ladika still with me in the studio. We're going to quickly look at the papers in a moment. But very, uh, before that, just a brief word about the UN General Assembly, because that happened this week too. But in between Boris Johnson's political trauma and Donald Trump's growing scandal over Ukraine, we didn't really have time to concentrate on it. Uh, Joe, is this, is this just further evidence that the whole thing is a bit irrelevant now? Um, well, it, 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 compared to the drama going on in the news, it all did feel rather starchy. I mean, I was out in New York for it, and I was also flicking onto the news channels, US news channels, which virtually nothing was being played from New York at all. You had to be concentrated quite hard on it. Um, there were a couple of interesting things that happened. Number one was uh, after the Trump uh, impeachment inquiry announcement, Trump was then due to meet and did indeed meet um, President Zelensky of the Ukraine. So you've got the moment of the two of them together, uh, Zelensky looking very sheepish and odd about the whole thing. Um, so that was a kind of key point in the drama. The other, I think, more significant one was uh, Pakistan's Imran Khan warning uh, that 
Narendra Modi, who's locked down Kashmir, this disputed region, essentially taken away its autonomy, is essentially being kind of rather provocative towards the state of war. Now, you had to listen to that quite carefully to spot that, in fact, those tensions, which are always there, seem to ratchet up yet again and on a big public stage. And they were using that New York platform to tell the world, you'd better watch out about this situation. And then, of course, Greta Thunberg, um, who, you know, the non-politician, in fact, stole the show. Is it still relevant? Um, it's sort of, it's a very strange, it's very starch. It's like a kind of tribal gathering of lots of leaders who need to sort of beat their chest to prove how important they are. Um, does it matter to a certain extent? But, I mean, nobody's particularly watching the speeches. Um, everything that's happening in the back rooms is what's interesting. And that those meetings are being reported, but only very loosely. So... Let's quickly look through a couple of stories in the, yeah. in the, in the weekend uh, <coughs> newspapers because, I mean, you, you basically have to battle through a blizzard of Brexit coverage to find anything else. It's it's tricky, actually. It's uh, 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 Kindly Jacques Chirac died for us this week, so there was one brief moment where we could think about something else. We could think about France. But, in fact, Camilla Long in the Sunday Times has this rather good observation. Um, she was recounting how uh, Chirac's uh, chauffeur used to call him Mr Three Minutes, shower included, which was uh, how quickly he used to pop in to see his mistresses. Um, she also re- recalls how he was bonking an Italian actress the night Diana died and therefore couldn't be found for a little while and that he had a bus a tour bus built in it with a bedroom so that he could just take people up to it when required and she points out that in the end in his obituaries all the, there was a lot about the kind of mistresses and and the the love affairs and so forth and the rest of it was all about lying scandal corruption which he eventually got done for in 2011 um, and had to serve a suspended sentence and that the two things reflect on each other if you can't control your sexual impulses you perhaps also can't control your impulses to uh, lie and cheat in other parts of the there's a lesson there for somebody I, else I you know, know. I, what, I don't know what you think i might be referring to yeah. um in other news there's a, a briefly on boris there's a, a fantastic column in the ft weekend by henry mance who imagines boris johnson uh, as a tech startup boris johnson TM, who goes out for rounds of initial public funding um, and uh, and it's a feel-good chat app to start with, but as people begin to connect to it, all sorts of strange things happening and their data starts getting used in odd ways. And, well, we know uh, he's had technology lessons, so he, he, has he should had be completely across lessons. all that. Um, but Henry Mance has also written another wonderful piece, actually, in the FT, um, which is about an immersive theatre show uh, which is uh, the Wolf of Wall Street brought to three houses in Moorgate that have been jammed together and turned into this kind of just a completely interactive experience of um, uh, actors playing out the Wall Street script, but the audience themselves being encouraged to be kind of wild and hedonistic and um, climb into bed with the actors. Interactive theatre is one of my yeah. greatest fears. Uh, and, you know, showering themselves with dollar notes and so forth. And in fact, although they say it doesn't really work, it actually sounds hilarious. It sounds like, you know, essentially you get locked in a house and get told to misbehave for the sake of art. But it's also, if you go to a comedy gig and the comedian singles you out out of 400 people yeah. to talk directly to you, you want the earth to open up and swallow. Imagine you go to a play and they're like, you 
sir, come join the play. No, I didn't. I didn't come to. No, no. You're the thespian. Entertain me. Uh, yeah, which way is the money going? And the the only other stories I would note was, well, there's two. Belinda Carlisle, the singer, is back singing at the uh, London Palladium and doing lots of um, kind of local tours in the UK. And Debbie Harry is back with a with a memoir which has been picked up by every single newspaper and so we seem to have gone back into a kind of retro music phase when we've run out of anything else to talk about all the old pop stars come back and the debbie harry story in particular as i think somebody said on twitter yesterday uh when a newspaper put put out the line debbie harry more than just a pop star reveals her hidden depths and everybody's like God, not another pop star trying to sell a memoir at the end of their lives. And her big line seems to be on um, plastic surgery. I mean, everybody gets plastic surgery. What's the yeah. big deal? It's just it's like, like getting... It's like a flu jab. It's like a flu jab. Um, I mean, I haven't had my flu jab this year, so, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't know which one I should do first, the plastic surgery or the flu jab. Previously claimed she had a facelift for business reasons. Well, you do have to... If you're a pop star, you do have indeed have to do that. I suppose, yeah, I suppose that is legitimate. Yeah, unless you work on radio, in which case it's absolutely fine. Yeah, this is, yeah. This is, this is the, the great joy of... The great joy of radio. If you ever want to know which radio studio to work in, work in the one with no cameras in it. <laughs> and from a camera-free studio, we will wrap up Monocle's House View for today. Thank you uh, to Joe Ladico uh, for joining me in the programme this, uh, this morning and uh, to our supervising producer, Ben Ryland, our researcher, Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was Max Barr. For now, from me, Paul Osborne, thank you for listening and goodbye. 